Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, anyway, hello and welcome to um, well, our parlour of conversations here at Pantisocracy. And today we have um, a lot of gorgeous folk behind me, some of them particularly dressed up. And we have some real treats, and unusual treats for Pantisocracy too, in a way. We have a room full of talent here, two of whom are women, who, if I'm totally honest, part of me hates them because they give me a run for my money in the fabulous category. <laughs> um, now, uh, showbiz people were often accused, and rightly, of overusing the word friend. You say, oh, my dear friend. It turns out they've only met each other once at a pub quiz or something. But our first guest tonight um, is somebody that really is a proper friend of mine, an old friend. We've known each other over 20 years. It's Catherine Lynch. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Now, Catherine, of course, well, she's a comedian and a singer and a poet, and she's also from County Leitrim, so uh, that's a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, next to Catherine over here is this beautiful woman, for the benefit of the radio listeners, who's looking absolutely gorgeous right now. It's Honor Heffernan. <laughs> Honor's a bit like Helen Mirren. She just gets more attractive as she gets older. And Honor has brought along with her tonight not just her voice and that dress, but also <laughs> her man, Mr. Trevor Knight. And um, obviously I want to find out more about a late blossoming of love that this couple have had, but they've also brought their uh, five-piece band. It's the biggest band we've ever had in here at Pantasocracy, I think. There are instruments absolutely everywhere, but you're going to be uh, singing for us and telling us a lot about Dorothy Parker. Well, that'll become more apparent later. And then, beside Trevor over here, we have a young man, Mr. Lewis Kenny, a man who marries his love of poetry and football because he is the poet in residence at Bohemians in Daily Man Park in Dublin. How many of you knew that there is such a thing as a poet in residence at Daily Man? Anyway, a room full of stories and talent. But first of all, before we get started, I get to hold on to the metaphorical spotlight by doing what we call the panty monologues. And my friend Helen and I, we were 20 years old when we arrived in Tokyo, you know, with no expectations, less money, and not a single word of Japanese between us. You know, we had left behind a provincial, uh, recession-battered country that looked determinedly backwards, where a young person's ambition extended no further than the ferry to London, where sex between men was a criminal offence, you couldn't buy a beer in a nightclub, pregnant girls used to go away for a few months and then come back without babies, Priests could be famous for just being priests. <laughs> and suddenly we were standing in the center of this gleaming, futuristic, cash-rich, crowded human megapolis with moving pavements and toilets that wiped your arse forward. <laughs> and we had no responsibilities and only one aim, to have a good time. Now, I quickly discovered and made a second home out of Tokyo's infamous gay district, Nichome. You know, a warren of small, narrow streets crammed with tiny bars. I would fall home drunk every morning and fall in love every night. <laughs> I hoovered up dark-eyed Japanese boys, you know, climbed into bed with Korean waiters, and woke up on futons with Israeli dancers, Canadian writers, and one French hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Japanese they have a very relaxed attitude to sex, including the gay variety, you know, unencumbered by prudery or guilt. However, social convention is very strong and alternative lifestyles are frowned upon. So while gay sex might not be a big deal, however, living in a gay lifestyle and, you know, and rejecting the expected path of marriage and a wife and two kids, well, that was a very big deal indeed. So although the denizens of Nichome were generally looked upon with a kind of, well, indulgent amusement, 
They were nevertheless considered misfits, and they tended to attack kindred spirits. Nu Sazai was a small, dingy one-room bar in the red glow of colored lights, you know, up a narrow stairs on the second floor of a small, nondescript gray building. It wasn't a gay bar so much as it was a misfit bar. The clientele of you know, punks, gangsters, artists, junkies, transvestites, nuts, prostitutes, and runaways, you know, they all felt comfortable here among its tatty stools, you know, graffiti-scrawled walls, you know, tucked away among the gaze of Nichome. And it soon became my regular haunt, you know, drinking bottles of beer and learning slang from aging hair-oiled gangsters or making a fool of myself over some pretty tattooed rockabilly and his bored girlfriend. <laughs> you know, uh, and overseeing all of this, collection of, well, friendly weirdos and interesting oddballs was a sweet, you know, skinny, older leather queen who knew everyone by name and treated everyone, whether prostitute or businessman, with the same easy maternal familiarity. And it was here, you know, among the beer and the smoke and the stories, that I found my, well, family of sorts. Mm -hmm. You know, I was free to be whomever and whatever I wanted to be. And it turned out that I wanted to be panty. You know, when I went to Tokyo, I had no intentions of doing drag at all. You know, and I had assumed that my brief, less than illustrious career as a badly painted mess you know, was behind me in Dublin. But in the spring of 1992, I met Angelo in a bar in Nichome, and we became fast friends immediately, you know, bonding over a shared sense of humor, similar taste in movies and fellas, and drag. Angelo was a much more experienced drag queen than I was. You know, he had started doing drag in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, a city with a long and rich drag tradition, where his you know, glamorous, big-haired, country-flavored character, Lurleen, you know, hosted <laughs> parties and lip-synced country ballads and quirky pop tracks. And before I knew it, he was agreeing, on our behalf, to perform as a double act at a local club. And, well, I've always been easily led. <laughs> With some difficulty in petite-sized Japan, we managed to pull some sort of look together. We rehearsed a simple routine to an ABBA number and turned up at the club with our backing track on a cassette tape. You know, thinking I'd make a fresh start from the car crash art student drag I had been doing in Dublin, I decided I needed a new drag name. And after spending no time at all thinking about it, I chose the name Letitia. <laughs> after a, a pet sheep we had had in Mayo as children. <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs> <laughs> so Lurleen and Letitia, we did our first gig, and thanks, no doubt, to um, well, copious amounts of alcohol and ecstasy, well, it was the early <laughs> 90s, um, people seemed to enjoy it. And we were asked back again and again and again. And before long, we were doing small shows regularly in a few different clubs and well, having a blast. However, it soon became apparent that the names Lurleen and Letitia were not working for us. Now, Japanese people have great difficulty with the English sounds, <laughs> letters L and R, you know, finding them difficult to pronounce and even to differentiate between, so people could never remember our names. We quickly decided that what we needed to do was to come up with a group name, and our shtick, of course, our USP, as the kids might say, was that we were foreign drag queens. So we decided that we should pick a name that was English, but that at the same time was easy for Japanese people to remember and pronounce. And we also wanted something that sounded cutesy, you know, that would fit in or appeal to the Japanese manga aesthetic. And the name that we came up with was Candy Panty. And it seemed to fit all the requirements, and indeed, candy and panty are both words that the Japanese already use, you know, they've borrowed them from English. But immediately, people started to call us Candy and Panty. And it became a nickname, and like so many nicknames, they stick until eventually even I forgot that I was ever called anything else. 
After the surname Bliss part, well, one night after a gig, the club owner wanted us to fill in a form to get paid, and there was a space for a family name. And until that moment, like Cher, I had never <laughs> even given the family name a second thought. So I just put down the first thing that came into my head, Bliss. Now, in those prehistoric, you know, early 90s, you know, before the internet and RuPaul's dragways, the only way to learn the basic skills of drag was through trial and error, and hopefully from a more experienced, you know, queen who would give you the benefit of her experience. And um, in the drag world, it's an informal system that's known as drag mothers, you know, where older queens pass on the tricks and secrets of the trade to favored younger girls. It's a kind of apprenticeship. You know, back in Dublin, I had fumbled through entirely on my own. I had never even seen a real drag show. My interest in drag as an entertainment form was simply because it seemed to me to be the logical result of all the kind of things that I was interested in. Dressing up, uh, making things, performing, uh, camp movies, extravagant costumes. I just wanted to be one of the glove-wearing, cinch-waisted, you know, glamorous women that flounced you know, petulantly across my Sunday afternoon TV or you know, poured from my subconscious onto my school books. Because although they often looked bored, they never looked boring. So doing drag with Lurleen, for me, was a revelation. Because it was fun. You know, laughing, screaming, sweating, falling over, boy kissing, waking up with bruises, attention grabbing, outrageous fun. You know, we were partners in mischievous cross-dressing crime, and we were game for anything. We did stupid lip-sync shows in basement gay clubs and hostess and acted the fools at dance clubs. We performed at parties and art galleries and wound up in pop videos and in magazine spreads. We paraded, you know, damply in the sweltering humid heat of Tokyo's first ever Pride Parade and clambered giggling into cars with gangsters and other dubious characters. You know, painted and teased and tottering in heels, I tripped and ran and stumbled and crawled my way through emporia of nighttime iniquity. You know, I devoured everything I came into contact contact with art, boys, music, drugs, gangsters, dykes, gays, love, sex, beauty. You know, no experience will be left unturned, you know, no offer rejected, nothing ventured, nothing gained. It was, admittedly, a risky strategy. But it worked for me, because when I finally did stop and look in the mirror, I was a bit battered and maybe a little bruised, but the person looking back at me was me. And maybe for the first time in my life, it was someone that I recognized as me even under all the makeup. I was on the other side of the world, but I had found my tribe. <laughs> Thanks. Um, because when we are putting these shows together, we kind of think about themes, and um, you wouldn't think it to look at you, but that's what we came up with for you guys, is finding my tribe. I'm going to start with you, Catherine, just because it'll be easy. Because uh, <laughs> I'm in your tribe. Yeah, because <laughs> I know the people think of Catherine as a comedian, some of them think of her as a singer, but most of us think of her as a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, Include myself. Yes, but now you, you see, you're all because you're from a small country town, and you were going to be a poet. Years ago, yeah, you know? I, I was going to be a poet, and yeah. I remember serendipity, I walked into this antique shop and there was two ladies talking about Patrick Kavanagh and if anyone knows me I love being related to Patrick Kavanagh yes you bloody do <laughs> yeah yeah I never get through a day without mentioning his name because you're his grandniece yeah so I said uh, Patrick Kavanagh I'm a grandniece of Patrick Kavanagh and the two ladies said oh are you really will you mind the shop for an hour we're going to go for lunch <laughs> <laughs> yeah so they went for a liquid lunch which I'd never seen before in my life I was only 20 and they came back zazzled and I got a job <laughs> but, but what's interesting to me though is now and, and I know other girls like you of course because I've spent a long time amongst the gays but you came to Dublin and you decided that your tribe 
was the gays. Absolutely. I just saw the same sensibilities that there were in a small town. We had like a lovely community. If something happened mm-hmm. to somebody, we all chipped in and sorted them out. Mm. In a small town, everyone's born famous, you know, because so you have all these wonderful characters that you grow up with. And the colour had gone out of my life. If I was going to start hanging out in the south side, I was going to die a death. So <laughs> all of a sudden I found the bohemian set and the bohemian set in Dublin were the gays. And I was given such a, a warm welcome into the scene, even though it was difficult at times, like a, a community will bitch, you know, we had lots yeah. of bitching, but when push came to shove, we were tight, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I started working in Small Talk Cafe and me and Shirley Temple Bar, and I think yeah, it was we were in, the waiters. Yeah, we were yeah. the waiters, but I think I was in love with Shirley at the time. I thought he was going to grow out of that phase <laughs> and marry me, Declan. If you're listening, you should have. So I suppose I was what they called probably politically incorrect. I was a real fag hag at the time. And then I became more than that. I became part of the scene. Yeah. yeah. But people often say to me, oh, you know, what, are there any straight drag queens in this kind of thing? I said, well, there's Catherine Lynch. Yeah. Because, you know, you are a drag queen. I know. I love being a drag queen. And um, it was thanks to Alternative Miss Ireland that kind of catapulted me onto the gay scene. Like, again, going back to a community and finding your tribe. Every tribe has kind of a leader. And I'm not saying it because you're here, <laughs> but you were kind of the leader <laughs> of the gay scene. And Alternative Miss Ireland mm. was the big Christmas for us gays. I'm calling myself gay now, but anyway, is that but, all right? But, 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 you, <laughs> but you're, you're glossing over and sort of saying, oh, you know, I'm just looking for a community. Yeah. But why the gays? I think the first thing coming to my head now, because I've never been asked that, is the underdog. And I suppose I was coming from an underdog county. Mm. I was coming from Leitrim. And yet we had a beautiful communication and we had great fun and great spirit. And I saw that in the gay community where we were making up our own rules. You know, <laughs> Leitrim makes up its own rules. And uh, I just, saw that a, there was a place to be free and there was a place to be a bohemian and to find your tribe you need to belong to somewhere that in the long run has no judgment and you talk about the inclusive rider we knew about inclusive rider years ago like mm-hmm. my show in g-spot i had every single type of person from an a granny to a trans person to a disabled person i used to use the disabled loo and the disabled people in the in the audience had let me go in i would go yeah can't go in i have to dress <laughs> hold it will you for a minute <laughs> like uh, i just found it was a, a really um human place Hmm. to be. I mean, I've often thought that it was something to do with maybe the relief of not having to sort of be a a sexual object. Exactly, yeah. For once, because in a gay bar... The men aren't interested in you that way. And so you can be, just be very real about it or whatever. And you know what? You learn things about yourself as life progresses. And, and sometimes I wonder, what the hell am I doing here? You know, why am I here? I'm dancing around. You've often looked at me as well. Like, what the hell are you doing here? Get out there. There's loads of straight men out there. But I never was short of a boyfriend as such because it was always the very curious boys who came to the gay clubs <laughs> and ended up going home with me. Sorry, Declan is in the audience. <laughs> but um, it was a kind place to be. And yeah, what I've learned along the way is that I was doing the right thing I was in the right place and everyone talks about misogyny now and I get the question and the me too thing and all that I never had to suffer any of that I was surrounded by really strong beautiful men all the time both straight and gay and I was just very lucky that Mm. I actually meandered my way into this path and I've had a great time I really Mm. have had a great time I'm glad it worked out for someone (laughs) (laughs) now Honor for the benefit of our readers you look spectacular Thank you very yeah, much. Absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> you are pretty clean living, though, right? You're vegan. I and all am that, vegan, yeah. and I gave up drinking a long time mm. ago. Well, it gave me up. I know it's it? no fun, I know. but I still managed to have fun. Don't worry. Um, 
How? <laughs> That's a secret. <laughs> but like Catherine, I grew up in Stony Batter, which was mm. a very close-knit community yeah. at the time, in the, way back there in the 50s. Yeah. You know, everybody knew everybody, all the neighbours knew each other, everybody knew me. Mm-hmm. And I was always singing. Yeah. My mother said I was la-la-lying to tunes when I was a year and a half in the cot. Mm. So the first opportunity, I started putting on shows with all the neighbours' kids. My mother would make crepe paper dresses for everybody. She was a dressmaker. She made beautiful... Crepe bo- paper dresses? Yeah, crepe paper dresses. She was brilliant. Everybody would get sixpence and go and buy a roll of crepe paper and bring them to my mother's house. There might be ten kids, ten girls and boys. My mother would make all these costumes for us and I would be director, producer and star <laughs> of the show and beat them all into submission. You know, I was, when I think of it, I was a tyrant. But there was this place where I live. I lived in Kerwin Street and between Kerwin Street and the cottages, there was this alleyway and it had a perfect echo. And every day after school, which was just across the road, I'd run to this little alleyway and I'd sit there and sing. Just sing. And the neighbours would be passing by. They'd have mm. to go. And they'd say, hello, Nora was my name. Hello, Nora. And I'd say, hello, Mrs. Gillum. Back to my song. This was just what I did all the time. And that was, people indulged that? Well, I never really felt like I fitted in. I always felt kind of ajar with everything, even as a child. But I didn't know what it was. I wasn't a girly girl in that way. Yeah. I had friends, but I never really had close friends when I was a child. I didn't have a best friend until I was 13, I think. So um, for me, it was always about singing. I drove everybody mad singing. I used to sing myself to sleep. I had a hundred songs by the time I was seven. My mother taught me everything. I'd hear a song and I'd say, can you teach me that? And she'd go and find the lyrics and then teach me Mm. the song. Of course, when I think of you, I think of you as a jazz singer. Mm. But we were saying you're a bit like Helen Mirren, but in truth, you're a bit more like Madonna. (laughs) You're always reinventing yourself. You know what I mean? So um, because you started out as a rock and roll singer. I did, yeah. Well, I started in singing folk and blues And then I started singing rock and roll. And then in the 80s, around the same time that I made Angel, I was asked by Shay Healy to do a radio programme where he wanted people from different genres performing together. So he put me in with a jazz trio. So I didn't really know very much about jazz at all. I knew a few songs, but I didn't know about the actual genre. Yeah. So I went and did the thing with Jim Doherty and Frank Hess and, and John Wadham on drums. Mm. And we sang five or six songs. And at the end of it, John Wadham stood up and said, by God, the ladies got it. You know? <laughs> so after that, what, they started... What was this? Chlamydia? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after that, I started getting offered gigs. Jim gave me gigs. I, then I started working with Noel Keelan and Louis Stewart. I kind of went like right in at the yeah. deep end. Which is great because I learned so much from them. And I know. just sort of mentioned you about reinventing yourself. I mean, you casually throw in a, a passing sentence about being an angel, which oh, yeah. is, of course, the uh, Neil Jordan movie yeah. and everything, because you also have a pretty respectable uh, list of credits as an actor. Yeah, yeah, a few things. But I suppose I'm known as a singer first, so mm. the acting roles don't come in hot and heavy. Yeah. You get asked to do roles where they require mm. a singer. Now, Trevor, it's, it's a late love story between you two. Yeah, Not that I would have said I'd given up at this point, but we met actually on, I think is it four years ago? 2014. At a Gaza march. It was when Israel did, you know, the most recent atrocity, I could call it. Mm. And so there was quite a lot of demonstrations going on on one particular one. What, your eyes locked? across a poster? (laughs) Honor was hobbling along on crutches. And strangely enough, our paths had never crossed yeah. until this, it's a tiny scene, you know, in yeah. Dublin. 
But because I should point out to people who might you know, not know, you're not simply honors Beau, but you have a <laughs> very long and illustrious and fabulous career in the music industry, including which I had forgotten about until we were reading that you were you're also to say, yeah. which in the 80s, you were the coolest Irish band ever. <laughs> you're like, also to was the first proper cool <laughs> Irish band, you and Gay Woods. Yeah, that's right. That started 1979 over in Holland. I'd moved over there with a jazz rock band with a... Worst name probably ever, No Buckets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was playing with these Dutch guys, have, you know, living the, the Dutch life, which was... We can fill in the blanks yeah, for ourselves, yeah. yeah. A lot, fair <laughs> bit of blanks. <laughs> <laughs> and I had done, done a demo with Gay and Terry at the time. So we, we came back to Ireland and very quickly had a, a bit of luck. Actually, in the old windmill, we were doing a demo and Philip Linus happened to be... In, a, in another part of the studio and he came on board to produce mm. a single for us. Yeah. So that just got us really going and the singles... Well, you know, um, um, he died at 36 and Catherine, you're much older than that. <laughs> 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 no, because um, uh, was Lewis here has a connection to Philip because he has performed... Uh, one yeah, of those like, poems. Yeah, there's actually when you talk to people, very few people realise that he actually wrote a lot of I poetry to, as well. Uh, hands up, I did not know that Philip was a poet as well. Yeah, he was a, he was a very good poet, actually. Um, I suppose just like all Dublin poets, all they ever write about was Dublin, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of his poems, Dublin, is just about how um, he has an affair with someone and then he's after the affair, he leaves, but he leaves Dublin, but every time he leaves, he just feels real sad about it. Poets. <laughs> that, well, affairs will do that to you. Well, actually, we have quite a bit of performances to get through today, so let's get to the first one, Honor and Trevor. Now, just briefly, and we're going to come into it afterwards, um, explain the Dorothy Parker connection and wh- what's happening here. Okay, well, I was actually back in the time with uh, Gay, who introduced me to Dorothy Parker. The book yeah. was there, the the collected works. I, I just I got this interest with her work every time I opened it and it just made the music seem to want to be, mm. to go with it. And, and the record is mm. songs that were all, the lyrics are from Dorothy Parker's yeah. work and you put them to music. Yeah. And there's an album and it's called The Whistling Girl. Yeah. Where does that come from? Well, there's an old saying, a whistling girl and a crowing hen are no use to God or man because girls who whistled were bold girls. Oh. <laughs> One of her poems was called The Whistling Girl. Mm. So... Trevor put music to that. So the first thing you're going to do is called Symptom Recital. And do you want to tell us anything about it before you do it? Or? I know, I think it speaks for itself. <laughs> and, and, and I should just point you, because I mentioned your dress. It has a kind of cabaret vibe that you're doing with yeah. this um, album. So you're full on, you're giving us the theatrical yeah. version of yeah. you, which, of course, I'm totally into. <laughs> wow. Okay. I do not like my state of mind I'm bitter, querulous, unkind I hate my legs, I hate my hands I do not yearn for lovelier lands I do not like my state of mind I'm bitter, querulous, unkind I hate my legs, I hate my hands I do not yearn for lovely lands I dread the dawn's recurrent light I hate to go to bed at night I sneer at simple, earnest folk 
I cannot take the gentlest joke I find no peace in paint or type My world is but a lot of tripe I'm disillusioned, empty-breasted For what I think I'd be arrested I am not sick, I am not well My quantum dreams are shot to hell my soul is crushed, my spirit's sore I do not like me anymore I cavil, quarrel, grumble, grouse I ponder on the narrow house I shudder at the thought of men I'm due to fall in love again Quarrel, grumble, grouse I ponder on the narrow house I shudder at the thought of men I'm due to fall in love Yes, yes, yeah. I love it. Thank you so much. Catherine, you are a huge Dorothy Parker fan and have been as long as I've known you. I know. I, that's absolutely gorgeous. I love it. And she's so dark, isn't she? But so witty mm. at the same time. I, I, do we need to explain to listeners who Dorothy Parker is? Or do we? Uh, Trevor, give us the potted history of Dorothy. Okay. Because she's actually surprising because she was like, a nice Jewish girl and sort yeah. of reinvented herself. Yeah, I think she was born in the late 1890s. 1893. So her time, really, everybody knows about her is the Prohibition yeah. and her hanging around with Ernest Hemingway and Groucho Marx and all these people, the Algonquin, the Round Table. Yeah. But, you know, she, she had sort of all these different lives. She was a, a critic, you know, she worked for Vogue, uh, New, Vogue New Yorker. Yeah. She drank many, it's the man under the table. Yeah. And she's sort of become famous, a bit like Oscar Wilde, just for her, like, bon mot and her yeah. sharp things. But actually, she was really productive in novels and poems. And, and her short stories and, and many, many poems. Also, the, the other bit that sort of that, uh, attracted me, once you got past the veneer, if you like, was her activism. So she was really involved in the civil rights movement. Mm. She left all of her royalties to Martin Luther King. So that I I still... She married a bisexual. (laughs) (laughs) What an activist. (laughs) When the Spanish Civil War was on, she raised a million dollars for the orphans. You know, she was blacklisted by Hollywood for being a communist, yes, you know. Yeah. So so she took no shit from people, really, you know. Yeah. And it's her feistiness, just, I think, her criticism of theatre, you know, the, some of the most famous yeah. sort of put-downs, really. But she's so many of those great lines that you can just quote I mean, she said endlessly. of Catherine Hepburn in one of her first movies, she ran the full gamut of emotions from A to B. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to dread her coming into the If theater. you want to know what God thinks of money, look at the people he gave it to. Yeah. That's right. And and when you're doing the performances for this album, you're not imitating Dorothy Parker. No, I'm channeling. Yes. And also the thing that I identify very much with her is that thing of not 
fitting in. Yeah. You know, if she was born now, we'd be going, wow, you know. She this was so ahead of her time. So, time. She was so a, ahead of her yeah. time. And yeah. like uh, kind of jarring all the time with life. She had quite a traumatic life growing mm. up. She was born a Rothschild, not the rich end of the yeah. Rothschild, but she was born a Rothschild. Her mother died when she was four or three or four. And then her father remarried. Her mother was Jewish, but she was sent to a Catholic school because his mo- her father married and she, Catholic. She used so to she call was the, the stepmother the housekeeper. She the wouldn't housekeeper. call her anything yeah, else. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I love she that. She was ridiculed in school by the nuns, you know, the little Jewish girl. Yeah. You know. She but was only it, four foot one. Imagine. Yeah, she was tiny. Oh, tiny, only four foot one, smaller yeah. than Kylie. <laughs> smaller than me. <laughs> yeah. Tiny. And did you have an interest in Dorothy before you met Trevor? No, I didn't know very much. All I knew was what like most of us know are the quips. Yeah. I was working with people like Louis and Jim, Louis Stewart, Jim Doherty, Noel Keelan, who all had this memory of her of being a terrible, horrible critic. Yeah. They hadn't gone in any further than that. You know, and of course, when you do go in further, you just find this amazing mm. human being, yeah. you know. Now, uh, because you're putting poetry to music and uh, Catherine wanted to be a poet, and you are a, a poet, Lewis, yeah. which is a, a, so amazing to me. When I, you know, 20 years ago, nobody wanted to be a poet. Oh, it's, it's, it's sexy now. It's so sexy <laughs> now, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's mad. It was like, so when I, when I first started doing poetry, it was 18, 19. And the other people, you know, the lads in your school, do they think, you dick? <laughs> or did they, you know? yeah. Oh yeah, even even now still it's just a poet. Like I, I was doing poetry for I, I think a couple of years before I even told anyone that I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like your gay shame. <laughs> <laughs> you had to come out to your parents. <laughs> this um, idea of being a poet in residence at Bohemians mm. was there one before you, or you're the first? No, one? no. I'm the, so I'd be the first in Ireland. Now Galway United have I suppose have uh, Galway United uh, have a, a wet jumper in residence. <laughs> no, Galway United have uh, Michael D Higgins. He's like the honorary president of Galway. Before me in the eighties, actually Pat Inglesby used to write poems for Bowes, but there was nothing actually like officially. He just did it. Yeah, you know they, they never asked him to do it or anything. And I'm pretty sure they, <laughs> they couldn't sure stop him. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they did ask him. He just told him to go away. But you have a huge family connection uh, to, mm. to, to Bohemians. It's part of your blood. Oh, right? yeah, it's four generations going back now. It was like um, my great uncle was a goalkeeper in the twenties. My granddad was a member for like forty years. Mm. She was working trade unionism, and uh, my ma used to work in the bar. Well, you are going to do a poem for us, and it's about Cabra, which is where you're from. Mm. Yeah. So um, tell us about Cabra the poem. I wrote it, it would have been the very first piece, one of the very first pieces I wrote. I wrote one about 19. I suppose it was. Sorry, how old are you now? I'm 25 now. I never really left Cabra much until I left secondary school. I ended up going out to to IDT in Dunleary. And it was only when I went where I went to college. Where where you went to college, as I did the the, the design, was it? Uh, Costume. Yes, now they they have a plaque. Up in the wall uh, to yeah. me. <laughs> but, they uh, don't, but they should. <laughs> they should. <laughs> they know what's good for them. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I, I suppose it was just me thinking out there that like, I didn't have any friends out there. I didn't know anyone. And I was actually, I was like out there, I was, I was subjected to quite a lot of classism as well. It was just like the people out there. You know, there was friends I made out there. They, they, they wouldn't come out to Cabra to, to hang out with me. Cause they Why thought, not? They thought they'd get killed. They thought they'd get stabbed. <laughs> They One of them did. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like, they'd be like, you know, it's just like, oh, I'm not going to stab her, you know, and then it's just like, 
It's just Stop, like, Brad, I've never yeah. heard that before. No, it's um, a good one. No? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Very inventive. But, um, but, but then I just started thinking, it was just like that. I, like, I wish that like a lot of the friends I grew up with could be out there with me and they went through uh, a number of other reasons. And then I suppose I just started thinking about Cabaret as a place in general. I suppose just like since the crash and how it's been affected, uh, like like loads of my friends would have emigrated. Uh, and I was just thinking about and where Cabaret is going as a place to where it used to be. And just noticing how it's kind of changed over time. And so the poem is a sort of a, a an ode to Cabra. It's a defense of Cabra. It's, I suppose, a lament, maybe, like growing up in Cabra and the sense of community and pride in Cabra mm. that I would have had. That I kind of feel is not really is not really there anymore. Let's hope you're going to change all of that. Yep. And <laughs> with a live reading of your poem, Cabra. And um, so yeah, you can go up there first. There. So uh, performing his own work, Cabra. It's Lewis Kenny. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth all the nightly bit of fights? The brightly pulsing nights, the endless strife, endless strife. Oh, for the suffrage just to belong. To be like a gentle wind, casually blow wind, subside and try to survive. Or is it better to be dead than not feel alive? See, because I remember the days when the crack in the lore of urban Dublin's poor, promiscuous grandeur. There used to be a smooth cure to the contour of my mood. Should a secure beat of this concrete jungle echo through the streets the sweet sounds of song and laughter? An uplifting treat to complete the fleeting restoration of my worn-out mind, hands and feet. I remember the days of competitive games of pats. The chat of who's da would be who's da. Ma, what's for dinner? That's a big bowl of shoe, son, or a bag of chips. You'll be brand new after this. A real winner. I remember the war chants at Daily Mount Park, or the ferocious fiery bark of Finn bars that gave stark, roar and testament to a unison that can never be ruined, you see. Because we buzzed off the high of this immunity. A beautifully crafted sense of immortal impunity left to run wild as the flow through the blood of every man, woman and child in this new glorious gentrified in our city community. But now it somberly echoes the language of the lay. The broken hearted, the sick and the mad and the best of the bright who went just a little too far astray. Sometimes shores apart looking for that fresh start but to tell you the truth that some of my closest friends and youth have now become just driftwood slowly born in the ashtray. And I'm born in two. This fire burns so brightly. It's a signal for all to see. But as we're drowning in the cold, deep sea of our own misery, we're doled out our weekly sympathies, a weak toast to the death of our limited liberty taken bitterly. But we take it. We take it, and it tastes so bittersweetly of deceit at defeat, of wasted opportunity. And I'm left here to wonder what happened to my community. (laughs) 
one of the interesting things to me about new poetry is that it's so performance-based. Yeah. Is that part of the thing that you like? Or Oh, yeah, I love it. It's funny, when I first started uh, doing it, it was all very new to mm. me. I'd never done anything kind of performance-based before, you know? Yeah. But then it's, it's funny, so the kind of difference between like maybe a performance poet and maybe Patrick having a writing on the page and the kind of differences in that, the different styles. Like, I would have seen a very, very clear divide between the two there, the saying that I would never really want to actually do a lot of page poetry. I didn't even know that you called it page poetry like that. It's, it's just like, you know, it's just like poetry that's meant to be read more yeah, so yeah, than yeah. actually kind of heard and seen on a stage. Mm. Like the idea of kind of like storytelling and poetry isn't a very new thing in Ireland. It's one of our oldest yeah. traditions, you know, yeah. but it's just kind of going through this resurgence now over the last five years. Uh, now, Catherine, you're also going to do poetry just ah! a, little bit, a little while, not, <laughs> not this minute, given because I want to go back to um, Honour and Trevor because you're going to do another one for us. Um, it's called Observation. That's right. Yeah. What's the story with this one? It's a story about being who you are. Oh, right up my alley. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear it? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. If I don't drive around. Pretty sure to make my mark. And if I'm in bed each night by ten, I may get back my looks again. And if I abstain. Probably amount to much, but I shall stay the way I am because I do not give a damn.
Remind listeners that there is an album to go with all that Dari part of the songs, and it's called The Whistling Girl. Now, I sort of mentioned briefly in passing the beginning that you two met not that long ago, even relatively, and it's funny because um, we try to think of the connections, and then sometimes on the morning of the show, these other connections present themselves that we weren't expecting. Because I just found out that Lewis here was on a Tinder date last night, and it went very well. <laughs> so maybe he's now in a new relationship. We don't know yet. And she's a Garda. <laughs> so if you're the band Garda out there who's on a Tinder date last night with um, Lewis, you got a good one. And of course, Catherine turns up today with a, a, a bow that I'd never met before. And he is from the same town that she's from in Leitrim. Oh, my God. Yeah, so mm. there you go. Find your tribe. Well, exactly. You went back to your original <laughs> tribe. Isn't it amazing? Like, um, myself and Declan know each other for about, whatever, 43 yeah. years. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, we met at a friend's funeral. So that's what my age group now meet at funerals. Yeah. yeah. But it's amazing you knew each other for all these years. And did you fancy him before quietly? I always thought he was very handsome, but I didn't really because there's two years in the difference between us. He's two years younger than me. And in a small town, that's huge. Yeah, well, when you're kids. That, yeah, when yeah, you're yeah, kids, you that's huge. My dad trained him in football and uh, he played football with my brother. Did your dad like him? My dad really liked okay, him. Actually, he was his, his father was a local yeah. postman and he died tragically. He, he had a heart attack in the post office. And I remember my father coming into the house and saying, now I everybody, you have to be very kind to Declan. He's just lost his dad. And I remember we were always kind to him. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm really kind to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, then one of the other obvious connections, of course, is that, um, Trevor, you lived in Amsterdam, as we already know, and you've already forgotten. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and Lewis, I'm, I'm presuming, as a young man uh, of the Ryanair generation, that you've spent a number of weekends in Amsterdam that you don't remember either. Oh, and, yeah. um, and Catherine over here, you're going to do a poem for us I am. that you wrote yourself, and it is called... Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Now, what's your connection? My connection is that it was just a lovely little affair I had in Amsterdam, and I wrote a poem about it. It's quite light. Yeah, it's and you're nice. going to do a, a poem about an affair you had in yeah, front of your, your <laughs> lover. My, yeah. well, Very uh, modern of you. And to quote uh, Dorothy <laughs> Parker... Men don't make passes at girls who wear glasses. I, I like your glasses. <laughs> Do you like them? Yeah. Okay. Amsterdam. We fell in love in Amsterdam when you thought the salt was Parmesan. We drank and smoked, laughed and cried, love entangled, love entwined. And the red light shone, stars didn't fade. We didn't know, how could we know? Sure, we thought we had it made. We spoke to no one all week long. In the Bulldog Cafe, we rolled a song. I sang it low, you sang it strong. Like the whiskey, we drank till dawn. So here it goes now, let it fly. It's time for us to say goodbye. Let it go now, don't forget. We won't be sad, we won't regret. I'll think of you when it snows. In Amsterdam, in funny clothes. Our stupid dance, two lovers smile. We owned it all for a while. And the red light shone. Stars didn't fade. We didn't know. How could we know? Sure, we thought we had it made. Oh. 
Is that about somebody you met in Amsterdam or you, somebody you went to Amsterdam with? Well, somebody I met in Amsterdam, actually. And I guess you could say that, that your current relationship is late blossoming of... It is a late uh, blossoming, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and to go back to somebody who knows you so well, it's so fantastic. Because mm. we are from the same tribe and we do... Um, you don't like, have to explain We don't have to explain and, things. Yeah. And I feel like I am going out with him for... 40 years because yeah. I feel like all the, the relationships I've had that I've, I've kind of not missed anything, you know, mm. so that I just had loads of fun. Mm. <laughs> and and honour yeah. now you, you know, late love too, I guess they, I mean, although it's more surprising that you picked an Englishman. <laughs> 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 you were born Trevor in England and came here in 19, a long time ago, you were a kid really. Yeah, well, I was born on an RAF station in York actually my dad was in the mm. he was kind of a non-flying Air Force person and then they moved back there my mother and father they grew up like only 200 yards away from each other in Dunleary and then I grew up really in Belfast up till 1970 yeah okay. and then we moved back to Dublin because of the troubles or um my dad lost his job and things were just getting rougher and rougher and they'd had enough of it mm. sitting in the traffic of the yeah. customs crossing the border when you got to Newry it was like oh. it was so free and easy in Dublin like compared to the just the paranoia yeah. and who you were talking to who you were dancing with any of that mm. so I couldn't wait to come back down and then I when I moved back down living with my granny and for a while you know while the house was moving that was just was just fantastic mm. And, and Honor, now you weren't looking for love. You were perfectly contented. And you, you meet a fella at Gaza thing. Yep. That was totally unexpected or you were open to... No, it was completely unexpected. I kind of didn't expect really to meet anybody ever again. Ever again? Yeah, I kind of thought, ah, sure, it's all right. You know, this is, this is the way life goes. You yeah. know, I was coming to the end of a relationship as well. So it was kind of, I was sort of thinking, better to be alone than not be happy. Oh, okay. you know, sort yeah. of thing. And Pete introduced me to this guy I, and he said Trevor Knight and I kind of looked at him and I thought, gosh, it's Trevor Knight, imagine, I've never met him before kind of thing. And then we got chatting and uh, we eventually started talking about the Dorothy Parker thing. This is why we're marching along shouting free, free Gaza. Um, <laughs> between the chants we got chatting and we started talking about music he'd written and would I like to hear it like a bit like a, would you like to come and see my etchings yeah, yeah. <laughs> not really no not at all um, you don't put out on the first date anyway yeah. are you? no never <laughs> she didn't um, do a Gaza strip <laughs> <laughs> so um, he sent me the CDs but in the meantime I kept thinking about him and it was like I kept wondering why am I thinking about this guy you know I mean I really I'd spoken to him for 15 minutes but he, why were you thinking about he it? He left an impression. But I even wasn't even aware of it, you know. But I knew that this guy was eating into my head somehow. And then we started rehearsing and we were meeting each other every couple of weeks, looking at the songs, trying to, to do something with them. And we spent a year doing that and then started touring in June of 2015. And by then, something had started, we'd started talking. Oh, so how long was it be a year. between Gaz and the first kiss or whatever? <laughs> Oh, it's quite a long time, yeah, really, yeah. Was, yeah. Oh, see, I thought, you we're know, like, yeah, we all sorts of no games, let's just... I know no, we're no, chucking we old-fashioned, like, really. Yeah, we were, it kind of was like, I suppose you, you're more cautious, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, mm. I've never been cautious in my life, hence <laughs> where I am. But it wasn't even that. It was There were a few circumstances that mitigated all that for a while. But I think, I suppose, I would have felt, and I'm sure Trevor was the same, that you have to be kind of careful. You don't want to get hurt. I didn't want to get hurt. I couldn't bear mm. being hurt. 
So while I knew very quickly, like within three months, that I was mad about him, absolutely. And I'd get, I'd get knots in my stomach and butterflies when I'd be going over to the house. To where I, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassing you. <laughs> but I'd get butterflies in my tummy going He's over He's loving to it. <laughs> <laughs> so you knew very quickly, but you waited forever. Yeah. And, and Trevor, yeah. were you into it from the beginning? Yeah, I was, but I was kind of coming to the end of a, another relationship that was sort of fizzling out. Oh my God, you're both so, on the rebound. Yeah. <laughs> so, we're both so fizzling the out. Kind of, yeah, n- now we have to get you know, more trouble. <laughs> but as we, we were working on the songs, just there was an amazing amount of, oh, it was just togetherness and it, easy, it was easy to be to, with mm. each other, you know. And then just, you know, you start to find out about other Bits and pieces that you about somebody's life. Mm. So suddenly, oh, veganism. I, well, I I hadn't tried that. So now, now by now, I'm kind of quite a good vegan cook. He's <laughs> oh, a great vegan cook. And now you're about li- you're living in sin. In, We're in, living in sin in, in Stony Batter. Stony yes. Batter. Yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. back to Stony Batter where I grew up, which yes, is finding oh, your lovely. tribe. I'm yeah. back to my mm. my old roots as well. Yeah, and I love. Um, I wanted to talk to you, Lewis, about the, the prison stuff you do and everything. He's not in prison, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but you do a lot of work in prisons. and uh, Yeah, yeah. Just very recently, I, um, I started going into We Feel Prison mm. just to do, uh, I suppose, poetry workshops. Is it a regular standard prison or, or one of the sort of specialist ones? Or? Uh, no, no, it's just a, it's just a bog okay. standard prison. Like. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely one of the more rewarding experiences I had with poetry because like, usually when you can come in and do workshops, it's like... Um, it's people externally kind of bring you in to work with like maybe a group of teenagers or adults. They're just there because they have to be there maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. There's no obligation for the prisoners to actually go to the school and take part. But like when you go in, there'll be about maybe two or three of them, you know, and they'll, they'll be queuing at the door waiting for you to go in just so they can work with you. And, yeah. it's, and it's amazing. It's, it's, hard, it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes though, it's just actually kind of, like there's one lad in there, he'll, he'll probably never get out of prison. But he's unbelievably, he has this raw talent about him. And every time I go in and work with him, he takes everything in, you know. And I see it when I come back. He, he's Everything I've told him to go away and do, he, he goes and does it. Yeah. He's amazing. I have a great friend who used to do drama uh, workshops in a prison. And um, she ended up, well, they, now she has two children and a lovely life down the country with one of the men. Oh, oh no uh, way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't go into details. I don't think they were meant to start a relationship. But anyway, <laughs> 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 don't get anyone in trouble. Now, so we have to wind it up. And we're going to have one last song from um, Honor and Trevor. Um, which one of you would like to tell us what the last song is? <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at that. They're still at that stage. Oh, no, you, Dorothy. Inventory. <laughs> inventory. inventory. And oh, it's another Dorothy, Trevor's music. It's, I suppose, making an inventory of one's life. Uh, mm. Ideas or things that you might need to avoid or not. And Well, let's hear it, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And thanks again to your band. Who've yep. been yes. So quiet in the, in the yep. background there and then uh, turn it on when they, we need them. And you might uh, remind us who they are again because we're terrible at that. Bill Blackmore on trumpet. Ed Dean on guitar. Darwin Gallagher on bass. Tom Jemison on drums. And of course, Trevor Knight. Men seldom make passes. Girls who wear glasses If you want to know what God thinks about money Just look at the people he gave it to 
You can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. Uh, you can't teach an old dog my new tricks. The things I am wiser to know Idleness, sorrow, a friend and a foe For be the things I'd be better without Love, curiosity, freckles and doubt Three be the things I shall never attain Envy, content and sufficient champagne Three be the things I shall have till I die Laughter and hope and a sock in the eye Five be the things I must never become Dull, old, or sober, a bore, or a bum Five be the things I must let off the hook My fingers and thumb from my little black book Twelve be the things that I hope for in vain Each month a new love that brings me no pain Four be the seasons of winter you bring A cold frosty crust to the outside of things Three little wishes yet nothing good comes To have and to hold while remaining in funds Two be the hour I sit here alone Love sick and loaded, I wait by the phone. Seven the sins, the deadliest pride. Anger and envy I cannot abide. The absence of labor, the excess of lust. It pains to avoid them, but suffer I must. audience will sort of recognize that this, you know, there's a whole stage show with this album too, which uh, uh, radio listeners will just have to imagine until they can go and see it. And um, so that is it from this episode of Pantasocracy. And um, I'd like to thank all of my guests, Trevor Knight and Honor Effernan, the uh, pride of Stony Batter, Lewis Kenny here, the pride of Cabra, and my good friend, Catherine Lynch, the pride of Mohill, County Leitrim. Uh, and thanks to our studio audience for being with us today. It's always lovely to have people here. And um, you can catch up on all episodes of Pantasocracy on pantasocracy.ie and all of our performances are there as well. You can look at the videos and all of that. Um, thank you so much and good evening. Good.